0: Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done.
1: Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams-Hurd the host of InTrust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang.
2: This is Bloomberg Technology. I'm Caroline Hyde in New York. In for Emily Chang. Coming up in the next hour, it's no longer full steam ahead for Silicon Valley. Consumer sentiment is changing quickly. Tech sector trying to keep up. We'll look at how Amazon and Apple really managed to win over these obstacles. Plus, the Chinese government tried to create a stealth TikTok account to promote propaganda in the U.S. Close to look at how Chinese state influence could be reaching younger generations. And the FTC is signaling caution to big tech mergers. Chair Lena Khan overruled her staff to sue meta over its acquisition of a vr company which wasn't necessarily an expensive deal to begin with we'll discuss the aggressive tone this case is setting we'll get to all of that in but a moment but first let's look at amazon proving its e-commerce power and cloud computing businesses also helping churn out revenue that Even consumers, the worry there about inflation couldn't offset. It gave revenue forecasts of as much as 17% growth in the current period. Really relieved investors, and we saw it in the share price reaction. 2009, best month since 2009. Spencer Soper, you've been covering it, particularly the consumer angle. And Spencer, from the perspective, what's amazing is before the earnings, we were really worried about what Walmart was suggesting, what Best Buy was suggesting, and then, whoomph, just Amazon shows its power and prowess.
3: Yeah, there were uh and and relief, the word you just used earlier is exactly right. There was these kind of expectations you know, caked in and then uh uh you know, the results kind of blew those concerns away. So investors were very relieved that both Amazon can resume growth, like you say, up to seventeen percent in the in the current quarter and also people lit on spending. They shed about a hundred thousand workers and, and started getting that uh spending in control, whereas previous quarter they had a lot of Concerns about overbuilding and having too many people, so and and investors were worried how long that was going to last and drag on. Uh, This quarter showed they're kind of you know starting to unwind that and starting to see see some uh, uh, some more positive signs.
2: And with the positive signs, of course, the forecast was what relieved. Any more details? You sat there on the call yesterday, Andy Jassy or his team spell out how they manage the next quarter.
3: Yeah, one one big thing, especially on the spending, was. uh, You know, investors are always worried about how much, how quickly Amazon is going to spend whatever comes in, and uh, because of that overbuild on their delivery network, they're not—they're going to cool off on you know warehouses and delivery stations, those sorts of things. But they are going to spend more, and it's going to be more targeted on data centers and fueling its cloud computing business. So they really gave a signal that they're going to double down on the cloud computing, and they're expecting that to remain strong, uh, even as they kind of cool off investing on the on the e-commerce side
4: and
2: what's so good or in this particular environment about amazon vis-a-vis say the walmarts the best buys that have such inventory loads that they now need to basically cut the price of is amazon does have a very different sort of business model behind it how has that helped it weather
3: yeah that's a great point and uh and something that really shown in this in this uh earn, earnings report amazon has this marketplace model where 57% of the products sold in the second quarter, that's the highest that number has ever been uh, before, come from these independent third-party merchants. And the main thing that means is when stores like Walmart, Target, have this inventory risk and have to take deep discounts on products they've already purchased before they resell them, Amazon doesn't have that inventory risk. If a merchant has to you know, take the price down on something to sell it, even if that merchant takes a loss, Amazon is not exposed. Amazon still gets a commission. Amazon still gets paid to pack and deliver that product. So a lot of this uh, uh, this marketplace model kind of shields it from this inventory risk that some of the other retailers are facing.
2: We really want to thank you, as always, for bringing us the expertise when it comes to Amazon. Spencer Soper, thumbs up. Happy weekend. Meanwhile, let's talk about the recent changes, the navigation that these companies are having to do around consumer behavior, around sentiment, because Jason Borstein's is with us, Principal at Forerunner Ventures. Of course, a lot of your portfolio, very much around the consumer. You, of course, are in one of us, a company that's all about consumer engagement and sentiment. And I'm interested, Jason, I, there was a particular note coming from Wells Fargo that caught everyone's eye. I know it caught yours, too saying, basically, if we're in a recession, no one's told the consumer. Do you think that the consumer is resilient in this current environment?
5: Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be on the program. Uh, absolutely. I, I- We at Forerunner really believe in the resiliency of of people. We hold people at the center of everything we do, and we're optimistic about the future. Uh, We saw consumers be incredibly resilient and adaptable uh, during the pandemic. And we believe that that will will hold up through this economic backdrop, and in the long run as we think about the next decade ahead. Why? You see consumers' um, spend levels are high. You know the sentiment, on the other hand, is low. They're really taking in what's happening right now, and they're adapting, and they're taking precautionary steps. So we're hearing about you know, 39% of consumers are, <clears throat> excuse me, are uh, creating a budget. 26% of consumers are creating a uh, a. Uh, a, uh, a savings account um, for an emergency fund. Uh, they're beginning to make changes. Um, certainly, for lower income consumers, uh, we saw this with Walmart coming out this week and lowering their profit target uh, when consumers are shifting dollars from uh, from discretionary categories like apparel to. Uh, categories that are more necessities, like food. Mm. So consumers adapt. That's their resiliency, right? Um, they may face tough times economically, personally, or at a macro level, but they adapt. Yeah. And, and that's where we see the resiliency coming in.
2: and also many have talked, like there are different types of consumers out there. There are the consumers that at the moment are facing you know, a balancing act they cannot win. Groceries cost more. Gas costs more. They are going to have to contain their purchases. But then there's the more luxury end purchaser who is able, despite perhaps their 401k falling off a cliff and despite some of their stock prices having been damaged, are still willing with the pent-up demand to be traveling and therefore your portfolio company away comes into my mind's eye or we're still willing to be buying an Apple iPhone or an Aura Ring, which perhaps costs a little bit more. Are you thinking that this consumer is bifurcated?
5: Absolutely. I think that that's true right now. I mean, I hope we would certainly have our eye towards opportunities that, are, that have the lower income consumer in mind mm. uh, and increasing access, increasing costs for them. But I do think that we are experiencing that. I mean, the reality is that this is a complex and dynamic time for consumers. Uh, as we mentioned before, spend is remaining high. Sentiment. Is low. You know, on the one hand, consumers want to get out there and live their lives coming out mm. of the pandemic. They want to eat out. They want to travel. Uh, you know, on the other hand, they have inflation staring them in the face and their dollars aren't going as far as they used to.
2: Yeah, I've heard much view that actually this summer they'll do it. This summer, they're like, I am yeah. just caution to the wind. I'm getting on that flight. It costs me a lot, but people are already buying. For example, Walmart said, look, we think that the shopping period for the September return to school is actually really good. But my worry is I'm the parent. I'm looking at Amazon Prime Day and buying my kids their lunchboxes because I don't want them to get more expensive. Are people buying stocking up now and then perhaps into the winter and in the fall, that's when we start to pull back?
5: I think that there's a possibility of that I, You know, at this moment We're seeing a shift in spend from from durable goods, uh, these one-time replacement purchases that people made during the pandemic. Mm. And they're not putting dollars towards that anymore. They're thinking about things like back to school, like travel, some of the services that they didn't get to spend on in the last couple of years. Um, With that in mind, very much so, though, do believe and see that that consumers uh, consumers are taking precautionary steps and they will start to pull back uh, for the middle middle income and upper income we haven't seen that effect yet for the mm. lower income we have seen that and to your point you know in the back half of this year that's something that we have our eye on uh, for sure
2: and we're looking at your portfolio at the moment and Chime is one that comes to mind and of course you were talking about how the consumer is wanting to save you're seeing a, a change in the way in which they're wanting to have savings for emergency rainy day funds what about just a desire to be in the market a retail investor one that wants to be seeing and building wealth how are you thinking about that from a fintech perspective as well
1: Mm.
5: There was a lot of energy around that, of course, over the last couple of years. You know, I think the, the reality has set in. There's plenty of individuals that got burned mm-hmm. that were tracing, you know, chasing uh, you know what what, what I see as, as a free lunch and there just isn't a free lunch. And so the realities are setting in. I'm hopeful that that consumers will want to continue to participate as retail investors. I think that that is important. Increasing access to new uh, categories of investments this is this is critical uh, for for broad wealth creation. You know, mm-hmm. that being said, uh, chasing the trends, uh, people are feeling the pain of that right now. Uh, and I think that will probably color and shape how they invest going forward.
2: Jason, it is always. Fascinating to have someone who's so early in one success story like Bonomos and then gone on to be VC and thinking about these sorts of consumer-facing companies. We thank you for Runner Ventures principal Jason Borstein there. Uh, really great thoughtful answers. Now, of course, this week we had the big news. The House and the Senate have passed the CHIPS Act. The bill goes to President Biden's desk next to get signed into law. Now, meanwhile, U.S. itself is tightening restrictions on China's access to chip-making gear, according to two major equipment suppliers, which further underscores basically Washington's accelerating efforts to well, win out versus Beijing's economic ambitions. Let's bring in Bloomberg's executive editor for Asia Technology, who happens to be in the U.S., Peter Elstrom. Thank you so much for being with us. And we have seen already... the reports that America was leaning on European equipment makers to stop selling over to Beijing and to China and now leaning on U.S. manufacturers. Talk to us about the latest news we know.
6: Uh, That's right. Yeah, we had two CEOs of chip equipment makers who came out this week and talked about new restrictions, tighter restrictions on their ability to export gear into China. And this is part of, of course, uh, the the ongoing tensions between the U.S. and China. Uh, The Biden administration has been following on these plans to try to restrict China's ability to get the equipment that they need to be able to make the most advanced chips. So what these two CEOs have talked about is that now they're widening the scope of that In the past, the the hurdle was sort of 10 nanometers, which is really the most advanced chips, and now they're expanding it to 14 nanometers. Um, And so the chip makers are now uh, pulling back and they're disclosing to their investors that they have these tighter restrictions. And this is part of this broader uh, clash that the U.S. and China are going through right now, where the U.S. is trying to hold back China as it tries to build on its chip making expertise in particular, but more broadly, the ability to build its technology sector.
2: his response from your perspective Peter?
6: Well, they've pushed back. They think that the U.S. uh, is unfairly trying to stop their rise in the technology area. They want to be able to build these capabilities within the country. They're investing billions and billions of dollars into uh, companies, into venture capital funds to be able to um, invest in semiconductors in particular because that's sort of the foundation of the tech industry, but also areas like uh, artificial intelligence and robotics, uh, autonomous driving, et cetera.
2: Also, of course, the animosity, shall we call it that, between China and U.S. on the tech level has also spread into the world of social media. And time and time again, we've heard perhaps the likes of Meta say, you know, the reason we need to keep on building and scaling is because otherwise China will come in. And they mean TikTok. TikTok's already got a real foothold in the U.S. And there might be reasons for concern. Can you elaborate a little bit on what might be so-called propaganda uh, developments in that space?
6: Yeah, t- TikTok, of course, is uh, one of the apps that was developed by this Chinese company, ByteDance. They have a whole bunch of them, but TikTok is the one that's really taken off. Uh, in the US, it's very popular with teenagers in particular. And it's um, it first came under scrutiny under the Trump administration, which planned on banning the app for a while, and they were gonna force the company, ByteDance, to sell off ownership of TikTok. Uh, it's become very popular, and there are concerns about national security. So the latest story that you're referring to is is that uh, we found information that the Chinese government had gone to TikTok and had tried to set up a channel where they could put out their point of view, their kind of nationalistic point of view, and advocate uh, for the the Chinese point of view in the world without disclosing where it was actually coming from. TikTok in this case pushed back and said that they would not comply with those regulations. They don't want to be viewed as a propaganda arm of the Chinese government.
2: They certainly don't, particularly when they do want to keep on expanding in the Western world. And to that point, Peter, there has been some interesting reporting from Bloomberg just about their foothold in Gen Z and and the way in which Gen Z use TikTok.
6: Right. Well, TikTok is just exploding in popularity, and it has been for quite a few years. What's really changing now are a couple of things. One, TikTok is beginning to cash in on that popularity. They figured out how to use advertising to be able to bring in revenues. And we've talked about how their revenues are surging. They're likely to go to about uh, $12 billion this year. As part of that, they're moving beyond their their old kind of platform. They used to be viewed as mostly entertainment. Mm. They were short videos that people would watch. If you had to search for something, you would Typically, typically go to Google, of course. But now what you're seeing is that uh, TikTok is actually being used to find things in the way that you used to look on search, especially with the younger consumers. i
2: And getting their news as well. Bloomberg's right. executive right. editor for Asia Technology, Peter Elstrom, keeping it on linear TV for us for the time being. But meanwhile, coming up, shares of Intel plunged today and the CEO told Bloomberg that its stock deserves to be down right now. Miracle, for a moment, we'll share more in that interview. Bloomberg.
7: What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more
1: at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film,
2: Chipmaker, Intel, has, well, slashed its sales and profit forecasts for the rest of the year. We heard that after the bell yesterday. And, of course, CEO Pat Gelsinger conceded that Intel needs more time to make its products competitive. At the same time, well, he assured investors, look, that the current quarter will be the low point. Here's some of his conversation with our colleagues Anna Edwards and Alex Steele.
4: We expect 22 and 23 to be challenging. And uh, we had great wins yesterday uh, that we announced with Amazon, you know, long-term multi-generation partnership with Meta. And, uh, you know, these are areas where we are going to go fight every customer, every socket, every workload. But we expect that 22 and 23 are challenging years until we get the products that are just unquestionably the best in the industry.
2: Macro headwinds, are they something that you are factoring into your expectations for the business, the extent to which you want to invest in the business?
4: You know, the enterprise market continues to be uh, strong. It's really focused. The weakness in the consumer market has been where we've seen it quite acutely in this period of time. But like semiconductors, you know, it's a cyclic industry and it always has been. And uh, we're going to embrace this and make the company stronger, better. And, you know, some austerity helps to drive my transformation agenda more rapidly into the company as well. And thus we feel like this is the bottom. That's what we clearly communicated in the earnings call. And, you know, we're off to the races to do better for ourselves and for our shareholders into the future.
8: You guys also talked about um, your new guidance for full-year gross margins coming in around 49%. A lot of analysts were really skeptical of that number um, after the call that it's just too hopeful considering all the pricing pressures that everyone's under on chips and increase uh, process nodes, costs, etc. Um, what's the probability you're going to have to revise that lower?
4: Well, we uh, clearly set out to... Uh, a framework of our financials that we are confident in that we can uh, meet and beat. So our confidence is high. We also had some one-time things in uh, the quarter, like uh, inventory reserves that will naturally reverse. You know, some of this was the you know dramatic swings that we saw in the quarter. You know, we weren't able to adjust our fixed costs that quickly, so we'll have more time to do that in the second half of the year. And with new products ramping, you know, they're very negative, and as they start to ramp. You know, we get uh, better margin structure. So overall, we're confident in the guide uh, that we gave for the year. And we have a natural strength of shipping more products in, this, in the uh, second half of the year, normal yearly cyclicality.
8: Intel stock is down 33% this year. It's down 10% today. The market is just not buying what you're selling. What, what is everyone getting so wrong then?
4: I think we deserve to be down today. And uh, with the earnings that we report, the guidance that we gave, you know, it's a bit of a reset. And uh, I think uh, we've disappointed ourselves and our shareholders in that respect. At the same time, we've laid out a multi-year path to the future, and we're confident that that will, you know, be uh, realized. And we're getting more and more proof points along the way, such as our technology and process. You know, that area is one that everybody has said is most critical. And Intel 7, Intel 4 got, you know, very positive reviews. We're ahead of schedule on Intel 3, 20A, and 18A. And if I have leadership process and capacity, you know, Intel's going to do fine for the future. We had neither. We're getting back both of those as we go forward. So we're working on it, but clearly this is a journey.
2: It is a journey. What difference will the CHIPS Act make to your journey?
4: You know, the CHIPS Act is a seminal act for This may be the most significant industrial policy legislation that's been put in place since World War II in the U.S. This is huge. Clearly, we said, you know, we are expecting and to be a beneficiary of that, both in the near term, right, with the uh, uh, manufacturing offsets, and we have an aggressive capital build for that. You know, the tax benefits will be helpful. But long-term, the research portions of the bill are huge for long-term leadership as well. This is good for the industry. It's good for the United States. And Intel will be a beneficiary thereof. And I'm proud to have played a part in getting it across the line.
2: Intel CEO there, Pat Gelsinger on Bloomberg TV. Meanwhile, coming up, it is a date. A judge decides when Musk Twitter trial, when it's going to begin. Boy, it's still until October. <laughs> So Twitter's lawsuit against billionaire Elon Musk over the cancelled $44 billion buyout of the social media platform set for a five-day trial starting October the 17th in Delaware. Twitter's lawyers say they'll need only four days to prove Musk is misusing questions about spam and robot accounts as an excuse to walk away from the deal. Musk is arguing Twitter's handover of the so-called bots material hasn't been robust and the company's mishandling of that data provides a legitimate basis for backing out. Kurt Wagner joins us now to... Well, explain why we have to wait all the way until October. But meanwhile, we get the drip feed of news and we understand Musk has indeed filed counterclaims in the lawsuit over the buyout, but we're not going to be able to read them.
9: Yeah, exactly. I, I believe they're not public right now, so we can speculate as to, to what they might say. My guess is he's going to say, hey, listen, the bot thing is a real issue, and, uh, you know, see you in October. We can talk about it. But as you mentioned, you know, this trial, we knew it was going to be in October. The two sides were kind of arguing a little bit over when it was going to be. Twitter had wanted it to actually be a week earlier than what it's scheduled, which is right now for Monday, October the 17th. Um, so clearly they were able to, you know, find a date that works for everybody, and I guess we'll see you there.
2: Five days, four days, all of it. I mean, Delaware, a court in Delaware is known for speed, right? But is this particularly fast or give it a context here?
9: Yeah, it does. It feels a little fast to me, but at the same time, I mean, so much, this... this you know, feels like a, a sort of simple case in the sense that both sides have already signed this merger agreement, right? Uh, we know um, the issues at hand, right? It's this, it's this bot issue. And so um, to me, it's like everything is already kind of laid out. And so as, as you pointed out, I think Twitter thought that they could do this in, in even four days the trial supposed to be five. So clearly they think they can make their case quite quickly and, um, you know, we'll, we'll find out. But it sounds like it's going to be that five-day week uh, and hopefully have have a a verdict or some kind of solution by the end of the week, October the 21st.
2: For lawyers, three months is pretty short. For our short-term media mindset, it feels like an eternity. What are you expecting next? What do we look out for?
9: Yeah, well, behind the scenes, we're going to see both sides, uh, you know, doing all the things that you do for a a trial, right? They're going to be uh, requesting documentation and providing documentation to one another. They're going to be setting up witnesses, uh, uh, you know, all of that stuff. I think in the meantime, there is supposed to be a vote from Twitter shareholders uh, in September uh, to kind of uh, form, formulate, or formulate, sorry, the deal, excuse me, form, uh, create the deal and and make sure everything is good to go. It's and <laughs> um, that's going to be in September, and that's a, a way for them to try to show that they're moving forward with this whole thing and they're not uh, you know, letting this get derailed.
2: It's a Friday.
8: I oh don't gosh. know what my
2: name is anymore, let alone how oh. I say formalize or formulate. Kurt Wagner, <laughs> thank you so much for being in the studio. Oh, we really appreciate you. it. Yeah. Stay well. Meanwhile, Federal Trade Commissioner chair, that is Lena Khan, is sending a pretty strong warning sign to Silicon Valley by trying to block Meta's pursuit of a VR fitness app within. Khan overruled, actually, her staff's recommendations to allow Meta to buy the company as part of its Metaverse expansion. Now, that aggressive approach for a pretty minor deal, seemingly, suggests that the FTC is going to play hardball with big tech M&A, as if we hadn't guessed that already. Bloomberg's Max Chafkin is here to tell us, first and foremost, Lena Khan overruling sort of advice by her own economists, her own own lawyers within the FTC to say, no, look, we're going to go ahead and pursue this case. How big a deal is that?
0: Well, it's a big deal in the sense that what we're finally seeing is Lena Khan sort of following through on something that I guess a lot of political observers have been expecting and that hadn't happened Kind of in the early days of the Biden administration, because you had this two-two deadlock on the FTC. Uh, now we have another Democratic commissioner, so it's three-two. So all of a sudden, uh, cases like this can proceed. And the, the rationale here is basically that Facebook ha- already has dominance of VR, which, although it's a nascent platform, you know, is potentially an important platform. And in acquiring. This smaller company as you said for not a huge amount of money that you know allows it to to extend its dominance now this is super controversial kind of in silicon valley because what facebook is doing is something that not only has it been doing for basically you know the last decade but the entire industry has been doing right it's a totally Mm -hmm. part of the playbook that these small that these big tech giants um, look to get into new platforms like vr by doing uh, purchasing. And, and the FTC is saying, hey, you know, wait a minute, maybe this is not gonna work anymore.
2: I mean, according to the House, uh, what is it, Meta has made 100 or so purchases of smaller companies. And of course, the FTC itself is already pursuing a monopolization case when it comes to social media. They're now saying that, look, you're monopolizing the world of virtual reality. But is Meta the main company that's gonna be at risk here? Or is this more of a precedent setting for an Alphabet or, a, a, or an Apple?
0: Well, I think it's certainly something that Meta in particular has, you know, employed extensively. You know, we're seeing separately what makes this uh, case, this lawsuit so interesting is that separately, of course, um, Mark Zuckerberg is running into real problems, problems with growth, problems with, you know, privacy, you know, the the Apple Mm -hmm. stuff. And we're seeing, you know, earnings that are disappointing. And the way that Facebook has gotten around, sorry, Meta has gotten around this, you know, in the past is by buying companies. You know, when there was the shift to mobile, um, uh, some of that innovation happened inside of uh, inside of the company. Inside of the company, then called Facebook. But it, but what really propelled. meta Facebook to dominance was the acquisition of Instagram. Of course, that was Mm. not a huge acquisition, not that much bigger than the one we're talking about here. And then the acquisition of WhatsApp. And that is, you know, giving it this huge dominance of social media. You know, if Facebook had its druthers, if Mark Zuckerberg had his druthers right now, you know, he'd probably be trying to buy TikTok. Of course, that's kind of out of the question right now because, uh, you know, the FCC is never going to go for that. They they won't even let him buy this tiny VR company.
2: And, and of course, Lena Kahn, we knew that her writings in, in, in academia was about Amazon and about the world of consolidation. It's sort of taken a bit of time, hasn't it, to finally get this bite rather than the bark?
0: Yeah, and as I said, you know, we, she has a very narrow window, and, and Bloomberg has written about this over the past couple of months, but because you, you had a 2-2 deadlock, uh, she really wasn't able to do anything. Uh, you get this new um, democratic... Uh, commissioner, and that gives her a 3-2 edge, it allows a case like this to proceed. But the issue is that once we hit the midterms, uh, if Republicans uh, take control of Congress or take control of one of the uh, you know houses of Congress, as we expect, then you're gonna see pushback, congressional pushback, probably from Republicans, and that's gonna limit her ability to get things done. So there's this very narrow window uh, politically, and she is, of course, trying to pursue it. So, So in that sense, it's not that surprising.
2: Mm, Yeah, of course, the two Republicans voting against this action on the FTC. Max, always great to have your expertise with us. Thank you. I Max Chafkin. Have a great weekend. Meanwhile, coming up, as the world slowly but surely still moves towards Web3, as we like to call it, we'll talk about the need to, well, maybe own your own digital identity in domain names. Unstoppable domains. It's just raised some funding. It's the new unicorn in the Web3 space. Tune in for the interview with the CEO. This is Bloomberg.
7: What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com.
1: Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams-Hurd, the host of in Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award winning podcast in trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Time now for our crypto report. And here's some optimism to wrap up the week Bitcoin, Ether. World's well, two largest digital tokens headed towards their best month since 2021. This amid a revival of risk appetite in global markets. Let's bring in our crypto contributor, Shanali Basak, who,
8: well, we know risk assets were well played for the month of July. Absolutely. So let's talk about what that means for Bitcoin, because on a seven day basis, Caroline, you're seeing it up more than 5%. It is starting to waver a little bit under $24,000, but it does have a nice little rally. And you look at that rally right here in the middle of the week, right after the Federal Reserve raised interest rates. That was supposed to be something that may have muted risk appetite, but it certainly did not in the case of Bitcoin this week. And if you take a look at Bitcoin over the full year, where does that leave us in terms of climbing back up towards where we were before? We have a long way to go because we were closer to 68,000 when we looked at it at the high over the one year period. We're not even really where we were for the average for the full year, where the full year average was a little over 41,000. So that 24,000 mark is an exciting little jump you have here. It still is. less than half of where you were, almost a third of where you were at the peak uh, in the last year. Let's look at Ethereum as well here because actually you had an even bigger jump this week in Ethereum than you had in Bitcoin. Of course, it is a smaller asset. It is a smaller asset by its market value, 13.5% jump there. So there's a lot of excitement here about Ethereum, about the merge that is anticipated in the coming months. So the question here is, This is this evaluation? play when you look at Ethereum versus Bitcoin? Is it a fundamental play? Are people more excited about Ethereum's future? Let's look at over the year, though. You do have that uh, 25% decline over the year in Ethereum as well. Still a long way to climb back.
2: Context is everything. Shanali, thank you. And you're going to be sticking with us because we're going to turn our attention to our next topic, digital identities. Now, unstoppable domains, talking of valuations, Web3 digital identity startup just become the latest crypto startup to become a unicorn. Indeed, the crypto winter not actually affecting everyone in the same way. I'm pleased to say that Matthew Gold is with us, CEO, founder. Congratulations on the fundraise. I understand being led by uh, some key VCs in the space. Talk to us about what Unstoppable Domains is trying to do? Am I going to be buying Ether or whatever it is in the future? And what reason would I need it?
10: Yeah, so we're on a mission to provide user-owned identity to all 3 billion internet users on the planet. And we do that by creating NFTs, and and in this case, NFT domains like caroline.nft. And uh, we believe you're going to use that not only for sending and receiving crypto payments. So uh, if you believe in crypto long-term, everyone on the planet is going to be sending crypto to each other. So you're definitely going to want to domain name to make that simpler. But we also think you're gonna use that to log into all your different apps. And people are already doing that right now uh, for Web3 applications, and we think it's gonna spread across to the rest of the internet as well.
8: The rest of the internet, talk to us about how Unstoppable Domains is kind of creating the next version of the internet alongside you and your rivals. What was the real pitch you had to investors to really uh, buy into the future here at a time where we're facing so much pressure on the market overall?
10: Yeah, well, people spend 50% or more of their time Uh, Online now, just staring at a screen, and less than one percent of the things that you own are likely digital assets. And we think that over the coming decades, uh, that's going to change. So you can see a lot of value being created in crypto, trillions of dollars in value here. We think that's only going to increase. And uh, you know, you see Mark Zuckerberg spending ten billion dollars to build uh, the metaverse and VR, Mm -hmm. and that just says to us that there's a huge bull market in digital assets over the next decade. And we think that one of the first things you're going to want to own online is going to be your name and your reputation and that's really the push behind digital identity
2: uh oh matthew i'm already thinking how hard it was to get my twitter name or my website name or things like that are they going to be countless i mean are we going to have to have like caroline hyde version one two three like explain to me exactly how it's going to look how it's going to feel the domains
9: yeah,
10: so you actually had a really good example there. How much do you think you know? Elon Musk's Twitter handle is worth to him, right? Mm-hmm. And it's probably worth a million dollars. And the thing is, he doesn't own that name on Twitter, uh, and you know he could get kicked off of Twitter, and then and he could lose it, right? And this is kind of the whole promise of Web three and crypto in general is that you should be owning these digital assets. And so instead of having like one name on Twitter and a different name on Instagram and a different one on Reddit, you could have a single name that you own and control inside your crypto wallet and then you can use that to sign into these uh different social applications and then you would have a consistent reputation but how expensive would it be
2: like what what if someone just went out there and bought all the celebrity ones
6: up
10: Yeah, yeah. So uh, the domain names are anywhere from $5 to thousands of dollars. It's kind of like the traditional domain name industry, with one major difference is there's no renewal fees for NFT domains because they are blockchain assets. And uh, through our partners, you can actually get domain names for free. So a lot of wallet apps now are working with us to make sure that everyone who Mm -hmm. downloads a digital crypto wallet also gets a domain name so that they have an easy endpoint to deposit money into their application. So there's not going to be a barrier to entry here if someone wants to get on but then on the high end, we are seeing sales for these domain names in the hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, uh-huh. for some of the more premium ones.
8: How Help us understand this. One of your investors is online talking about how you're kind of what Coinbase is to crypto, you are to Web3. What does that really mean? And how does that kind of put you at the center of an industry in that kind of a way?
10: Yeah, so... Um, the, the very first simple use case is sending cryptocurrency and if you have like 20 or 30 different cryptocurrency addresses, you're not going to be able to remember all of them and they're really long computer hexadecimal addresses. So that's kind of like IP addresses on the internet in the early 90s and everyone replaced those with uh, domain names like .com. And this is like that except for individuals. So for .com domain names where you have you know maybe 50 million businesses and 300 million registered uh, domains, for this we actually think it's going to be every single user on the internet. So that's 3 billion people um, with, a, with an NFT domain to make it easier for people to find information about them, verify information about them, and uh, send them money. So if you ask me, like, what am I going to be using this for? Um, we think it's going to help you have portable reputation on the internet. And so, you know, we have two major problems on the internet. One right now is that you actually can't own anything. And then the other one is all these problems around fraud, spam, bots, et cetera, that we actually just talked about with Elon Musk in the prior segment. And if you had portable reputation, you could actually help solve that problem. So I'll give you a for instance. um, My dad actually bought tickets on eBay and... uh, it happened to be from a scammer. And the thing is is that scammer can actually just go and then start selling, you know, fake tickets or whatever on a different website like Amazon marketplace. And because there's not a consistent reputation across applications online, um, these applications can't check and see if that person is potentially uh, doing fraud. But if you had a consistent reputation so that you were caroline.nft uh, on one platform and then you're caroline.nft over here and your caroline.nft yeah. on Twitter, then you have a consistent reputation and we think that actually makes the internet
2: Safer. Very briefly, Matthew, and I understand it's a hard one to have to tackle, but you know, this is a time where valuations have crumbled. You've managed to get an above a billion and a 65 million amount. Did you have to down, downgrade a little bit when you first started having the conversations?
10: Uh, So we've seen cooling across the whole market. So Unstoppable Domains is no exception to that. Um, We're just fortunate enough to be working with some investors who've been in space for a long time. Cantera is our lead for this. They've been investing in crypto for 10 plus years. So I'd actually say to founders out there looking to raise money, Mm -hmm. um, if you're in it for the long run, then I think you'll be fine going out and funding right now. It is significantly harder than it was in 2021, uh, but that's okay. I mean, if you're here to really create utility for users instead of speculation, you'll still find a business model that works and you'll still be able to figure it out.
2: Well said, Matthew Gold. Thank you so much, CEO and founder of Unstoppable Domains. And Shanali Basak, as always, thank you so much. We want to take a moment to look at the relationship between Hollywood and anti-abortion states now. We often consider, perhaps, media companies, movie stars, to be relatively outspoken about like the overturning of Roe versus Wade, even some attending protests sometimes. But the Hollywood machine is sort of not taking sides. It's spending billions in film and TV production in states seeking to restrict or outlaw abortion. We want to talk about, perhaps, some of the tension there with Bloomberg's media and entertainment editor, Kelly Gilbom, of course, who is here, who's just got over COVID. So we thank you so much for doing it with us. And, and Kelly, um, what I'm really interested in is... Look, we're not going to take sides either because we know this is a nation divided. But talk to us about how there is a tension perhaps between employees that work at certain media companies and the decision-making process that media is in terms of spending money and making movies and TV productions in states that perhaps some employees might feel don't reflect some of the way they want their U.S. to reflect
11: hard position for these big media companies to be in today you know Hollywood I think people there kind of see the business as both being part of culture and leading culture so when there is a big social issue uh, they feel strongly about they like to be at the forefront of that but at the same time um, for each project that you see each television show each movie these take years and years of planning they're incredibly expensive and every single city- Single line item on the budget um, that can be removed um, is going to be good for the overall production and sometimes the financials mean the difference between something getting made and not getting made so states uh, like Georgia for example that has uh, tried to put in more restrictive abortion laws have been really good at being the cheaper option uh, for some of these companies so they've got a balance getting their projects made but at the same time they do have a lot of employees uh, that are pretty outspoken Mm -hmm. and not only that but they've got business partners like actors and directors that Mm -hmm. are outspoken too about their values so they're trying to uh, both run the companies and and try to keep these employees happy and and not make this a talent retention issue at the same time.
2: Interesting the talent retention and element of it Kelly as well are there new states other states that are trying to woo the making of movies and TV in that place because they say look we're not looking to change anything up in terms of the ability to access healthcare.
11: You know, I haven't seen, I did a lot of reporting on this, and I was a little surprised that the other states um, that are uh, not seeking to restrict abortion rights, uh, they're not selling themselves quite as much. Um, I covered one, uh, talked about one interesting case and uh, in a story I wrote about a film called Eric LaRue. This is a film directed by Michael Shannon. It actually was a project that was set to start filming in Arkansas. Uh, that's a, a state that has some of the most severe Abortion restrictions, um, and the filmmakers actually decided to move it to North Carolina, mm. uh, a, a more free state. But the the film officials that I spoke to in North Carolina weren't out there trying to say, "Hey, come here." They were just saying, "You know, that's great, but honestly, we heard about it from you in the press. Um, you know, they're not trying to make that pitch that hard. But you know, it could be something that uh, affects the business long term um, if people are pressured." Uh, the executives of this company if they're finding you know actors that are going to attract people at the box office don't want to film in those states it could be a long-term benefit uh, for other states or other countries um, that uh, both have financial incentives for filmmakers and uh, are more free on the abortion issue
2: it's a fascinating read thank you so much for spending some time just outlining the depth of your reporting that went into it all Kelly Gilblum, of course. She is a media and entertainment editor here with Bloomberg. And, of course, that now does it from this edition of Bloomberg Technology. We have a special episode coming up Monday. I'm going to focus on antitrust legislation, scrutiny of big tech in particular. We've just been discussing it, of course, with our own Max Chafkin about the FTC, the focus on meta, so you do not want to miss that conversation. Meanwhile, of course, catch the podcast. You can find it on the terminal, as well as online on Apple, Spotify, iHeart. You don't want to miss that one, either. Have a wonderful
1: weekend, everyone. This is Bloomberg. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams-Hurd, the host of in Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.